Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And it is now a Sunday, the 27th of December. Uh, generally a nice slow week to uh, polish off the year. Today might be the chillest day of the entire year. You've got Christmas, then you've got Boxing Day, then a wasteland of activity before New Year's. And the closer you get away from Boxing Day towards New Year's, the more activity pre-New Year's you've got to think about. I've got to make sure I've got right. Martinelli's uh, apple cider. It's I, festive. I don't really drink champagne. Uh, before New Year's, got to go to the store or, you know, Instacart that or whatever. And but. so, you know, that's heavy responsibility to bear. Today, chillest of all days. Except it's not so chill because this whole business about the COVID relief plan is really up in the air. Yeah, that's true. That is definitely not chilly, but rather heating up. I mean, yeah. people are talking about this very seriously. We're closing in. We're running out of time to actually get something done. And we're also going to talk about uh, saying goodbye to the famous folks who passed on in 2020. But first, yeah, let's talk about the whole Trump situation. I mean, I guess in a way we're kind of used to this brinksmanship where you the government's going to shut down as if anything, you know, really ever bad happens right. when that, you know, the, the crucial stuff, uh, the, the first responders and so on, they still get paid, they still do their work. But wasn't it weird that Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, presumably with the blessing of the big guy, Donald Trump, right, went in and went toe-to-toe with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the rest of them and negotiated this deal, and everybody was all happy, and we cut a deal, and then all of a sudden, after it's passed by Congress— I guess Trump just threw a curve to everybody. Right. I mean, this is brutal. Everybody's saying, oh, oh, the whole government's just failing us on this front. We know who's failing us on this, on this front. We need an extension of unemployment benefits. We need direct relief to American citizens. And when Pelosi goes in and negotiates, she strikes a deal with the Republicans, and then Trump vetoes her. And then she instead goes and negotiates with Mnuchin, Trump's minion, strikes a deal, and then McConnell vetoes her. What are they supposed to do? There's, we know who the obstructionist, obstinate parties in this situation are, the ones who don't want to put up an extra $1,400, because that would be the gap. We're talking about a $1,400 gap here. 600 to 2,000. 600 to 2,000 to actually close it and make and make Which this translates a, a, to about, what, $320 million? Right, sure. I mean... That okay, is okay. Bi- perhaps a billion, $320 billion. I sure. got to get my numbers right. Okay. Uh, and they just they just can't make it happen? I mean, really? They, they, they can't—it's not like the, the, the Republicans are even moving. It's not like they're saying, okay, well, not this, but for some structural monetary reason, we think we can't do 2,000, but we can do 18. We can do 17. We can do 15. They, can, they won't even start. They won't even move to, say, to 800 or 900 or 1,000 or whatever because they don't want to start that conversation. Well, the negotiation was tough, but, I mean, there's a huge gap between $600 and $2,000. And right. the idea that the president would make that jump. I mean, so here's you know my conspiratorial mind, and mm. maybe I'm being paranoid, yeah. but, but a couple of weird theories here. One theory is that Donald Trump is committed to the idea that he's going to run for president in 2024. Right. 
And he figures in his political genius brain that got him where he is from nowhere. He figures that if things are basically okay in three or four years from now, if the federal government has sort of made progress through compromise, that he's going to lose and that Biden will win for re-election because presidents almost always win uh, when they run for re-election. Unless their name is Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Or Adams or Bush. Right. But you need, yeah, Trump was one of the few exceptions in history. 50 on those Adams and Bush answers, by the way. Both of them. Well, that's right. Bush, that's true. That's true. So here's the deal, though. Um, If Trump is saying to himself, if everything is okay, kind of, when I run, then I ain't going to make it. And so his chance is, what if the Democrats have total control of the government starting in January and they screw it up. They start defunding the cops. Uh, You know, we were overrun by the Chinese communists because the progressives beat our swords into plowshares or whatever. Yeah. That's the best way for Trump to win in 2024 is if there's been an apocalyptic uh, administration. Trump as secret self-saboteur is a fantastic conspiracy theory. Well, not self-saboteur, Republican saboteur. Right. But party saboteur, right. that is that is a, a narrative and conspiracy theory I'm currently signing on to. I am your acolyte. I will <laughs> I will spread the, the gospel. I swear I love this idea. Yes, he is so committed to getting back at Mitch McConnell. I mean, there is, an, I think, an element of how personal this is. I feel that Trump blames everyone in the Republican establishment for his loss because he's paranoid, because he feels that everything's about him, and that thus that he feels... Uh, that the only way that he could have lost because he fills himself, he, he surrounds himself with this echo chamber of idiots who are total yes men. So the only way he could have lost is that uh, he, there's a traitor, that secretly the Republicans don't care about him, don't like him, that they threw him under the bus. Uh, well, I think he does have so real hard feelings against Republicans who didn't fall in line with his talk about how he really won bigly and yeah. there was massive fraud. And, yeah. and we know the first week or two, I think most Republicans were, were fine in in his camp in the sense that they were saying, absolutely, he has a right to pursue his legal remedies. And then every few days that passed, more Republicans fell yeah. away. And eventually now McConnell, the, right. especially, has, has recognized uh, well, the, the Electoral reality. College vote on right. December 14 was a big deal. Yeah, hard, hard to look away from that, although they've destroyed every other norm, so why not? Uh, but that is a betrayal. Of, the, of Trump directly. And so that, I think, is, is the part of the reason, at least, why Trump is now trying to blow up McConnell's deal. Well, I di- and I didn't quite finish my wacky conspiracy Ooh, theory. The it final, gets deeper. Yeah, the final chapter of it is maybe Donald Trump, in order to implement his policy of, of the apocalypse, <laughs> is actually secretly hoping that the Democrats win both seat, seats in Georgia. Liberal and one way to accomplish that or encourage that result is to just blow up this deal and have have all the Republicans running around like they're uh, with their hair on fire, wondering what are we going to do? Why is he doing this? Gee, we wanted to reach out to people with good COVID relief. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's probably probably I'm being paranoid. I appreciate the fact that you're on board with right. the theory, but there's that one theory. The, the other, I guess, milder theory is that what Trump is doing. Now, in saying, doggone it, I want regular folks to get $2,000, not $600, and doggone it, we don't want to give a bunch of money to foreigners and so on. It's kind of symptomatic of and symbolic of the fact that Trump continues to be unmoored to any point along the ideological spectrum. Right. He is neither a conservative nor a libertarian. He certainly isn't a, a progressive. 
arguably he's a populist, whatever that means. But really, all that means is whatever is popular at the time. Right. You know, we move against the elites and so on. Exactly. Essentially, a, it's right. all about the greater glory of Donald Trump and his personal status, yeah. having nothing to do with what's right and wrong from a political philosophical standpoint. It's about getting elected again and protecting his situation. So, you know, either way, I'm just concerned that he really didn't think it through and didn't think through the fact that if he wanted the Republicans in the Senate races in Georgia to win, he would have had nice, calm, smooth waters between now and then, as opposed to roiling the waters with this with this amazing controversy uh, over, over the COVID deal. Now, well, I don't know about that. I mean, it, people have been saying that Trump roiling the waters and frothing at the mouth and shouting lock her up and smashing every norm, that that excites the Republican base and brings them out. So why wouldn't it continue to excite the Republican base and bring them out? If he's out there screaming revenge from, uh, you know, avenge me in Georgia, if, if he's out there screaming uh, that, uh, that the election fraud is happening, I know that is problematic because it might discourage people from voting. But if he's out there roiling the waters, maybe that's what brings people out to vote in, in Georgia. After all, he got an incredibly high record setting uh, almost uh, number of votes for a presidential candidate, certainly the most for a Republican presidential candidate. Uh, so that's very impressive. That's called bringing out the base. So maybe roiling the waters is actually strategically beneficial. And maybe he's out here screaming and yelling and kicking and saying regular everyday people should get $2,000. Maybe he thinks that will bring out Republicans in Georgia. I don't know. Maybe, but I think a lot of more experts are speculating the other way. They're saying that any emphasis of the fact that this whole thing was a result of cheating and fraud, it kind of sours people on yep. voting. Yep. And because, you know, there were actually some Republican folks, some real live Republicans saying, oh, don't bother to vote in, in the Georgia runoff yeah. because it's just sort of like it's enabling this fraudulent election system. And, right. and, and that's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad message for the concept of democracy. And though all, I would love for all the Republicans in Georgia to stay home and not come out and vote in, in Georgia in January. It is destructive to the concept of democracy to undermine uh, the legitimacy of elections uh, for no reason and to say participation is bad because, you know, the, the, the foundation of democracy is the idea that, is, is that participation is good. Like, if you don't believe that, uh, and if you can't believe that because someone has under uh, undermined uh, our norms and our institutions and our public trust, uh, then we're doomed. It's, it's over. That's the beginning of the end because when people can't trust elections, then they'll say, well, then I'll just pick my leader with a gun. So while we're on the subject of COVID, and of course the, the COVID relief is, is at issue in, in the efforts by Congress to uh, to pass. Oh, by the way, before we move to the overall COVID strategy, have any predictions, Connor? You think the uh, Congress would actually dare to uh, vote two thirds and override a veto if, in fact, he does veto it in the next uh, day or two? I mean, it, it passed. I don't know what the exact numbers were, but I think it passed by pretty close to two thirds or more in both the House and the Senate. Yeah, it's a very it's a very good question, uh, and I think that there are too many Republicans who are afraid of offending the Trump base. Um, but at the same time, uh, to, to really like stage an open revolt against Trump, even though he's a complete lame duck, right? He's gone January 21st. So who mm -hmm. cares what he thinks? But he has so much power in the media narrative that he you know pulls the strings on, controls Trump world. So maybe that would be offensive. But at the same time, if people are saying it was it's too it, it's not you know, it's it's not two thousand dollars or nothing. It's six hundred dollars to uh, six hundred two thousand or nothing. And so 
they we know we couldn't get 2000 for Trump's plan, but the Republicans get to go home and say to their constituents, look, I know that you like Trump and I know that I overrode his veto. But what, what do you want me to do? The clock was ticking. You guys needed money. I needed to get you six hundred dollars in hand. I'm sorry it couldn't be 2000, but the numbers just weren't there. And we got something through Congress. That's right. pretty good. Here's a check. You know, that's that that might ring true with voters yeah. as well. Yeah, I we got a lot of people in the House are going to have to make some uh, tough decisions and, really the, tough and the Senate decisions. as well. Yeah. Uh, we're going to pause now. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the big picture in terms of COVID strategy. We're in a very weird position here. We've been struggling as a, as a nation, as a world over what to do, whether to shut down, whether to just protect the vulnerable. Yeah. And now we still have this problem fueled by you know, the holidays and, and all the interaction. And yet... Talk about light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, the vaccines are being administered. So we're going to get to that when we come back. But first, Connor, if you could let folks know how they can rate and subscribe. As always, it's a huge deal. Uh, Super helpful to us to hit the like and the subscribe uh, buttons uh, on your podcast platform of choice. So that is if this is your first time listening to the episode or if you're, you know, a casual listener, you know, sign up to get the the episode pushed to you every every week. We really appreciate it. Go into Apple podcast and and say, you know, send me a notification when there's a new episode episode or go into your podcast platform. Uh, I use Podcast Addict, but you might use Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever else. Uh, And while you're there, if you want to leave us a review and a comment, we love those too. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So good riddance to 2020, man. Talk about a, a, a a sense, a feeling that everybody on the planet essentially shares. I mean, it's just been such a horrendous year because of the pandemic. And it's so weird that we're still thinking about this debate about, you know, we've got the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers and 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 because of, of Thanksgiving and Christmas. I mean, you know, these scary stories about the there are no ICUs available in the yeah. hospitals in California. Yeah, I've got friends with COVID st- sitting mm-hmm. at home, struggling to breathe, knowing that if the oxygen sensor says you're below X percent mm-hmm. and you should go to the hospital, he can't do it. No place to go. No yeah. place to go. Talking about rationing, doctors at hospitals making decisions as to who, who lives and who dies. It's just like it's out of some awful science fiction story. And yet at the same time, we all have this sense that we've kind of turned the corner and we do see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I don't know that the debate over how to deal with this is, is really, there's going to be too much oomph behind it. But it sure seems like for the last, most of the last year, there has been this debate that's been fueled by science, but it's also been fueled by politics. Yeah. I mean, from a, from a sort of a right of center perspective, I think there's, there's been a very great suspicion that progressives have seen the pandemic. Of course, it's not that they don't want to help people and they, they care about human life, but progressives are always thinking about Rahm Emanuel's uh, maxim, never left let a good crisis go to waste. And when you have a crisis that gives people who are progressive an opportunity to make some permanent inroads in, in the psyche of Americans and the way people think about the federal government and the obligation of people to help each other, I think a lot of folks have seen this opportunity 
to to have governors and local politicians, as well as people at the federal uh, government level, to grab a hold of people's lives and lifestyles. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who resist, who say, doggone it, don't tell me to wear a mask. You know, I think that's probably the, the sentiment that you saw in the upper Midwest, the North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Wyoming, where you see these off the charts rates bad, of COVID. Numbers, yeah. yeah, But I mean, other places like, you know, Los Angeles, you could call it bastion of filthy liberalism, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah of our <laughs> modern times uh, uh, here where we, you and I live in L.A. I mean, we're the hotspot of all hotspots at the moment because of population density and other issues. And it, it's it's horrible. It, we have a we have a war in this country and it is a culture war and it is a war on the insane, individualistic, ridiculous notion that everything you have, you earned and everything that you uh that the government wants from you uh, is theft. And this well, is this you're expressing a classic progressive exactly, viewpoint, but are absolutely. you buying into the idea that the progressives were, you know, kind of secretly rubbing their hands together saying, of course, I don't want people to be hurt or to die, but I do want to exploit the situation. No, of course not. They're the ones saying you have to wear a mask so you don't spread the disease around. And people, other people are saying, that's a political statement. You're trying to control my life. And people are going, everybody controls everybody's life. The idea that you are obsessing over the details of, of the inconveniences that are foisted upon you by the practical reality of trying to defeat the worst pandemic in a hundred years well, but is what this about, insane self-centered BS where but you, what about you the, can't get out of your own head for five seconds I hear to think you. about the practical reality instead of, I don't like my face to be so hot. But what about the double-barreled motivation by people left of center to get rid of Trump? Because frankly, I think there, there, was, there was an unprecedentedly strong motivation to get rid of this guy. And one way to get rid of him was to really hammer on the fact this that like, he brought he brought on the apocalypse. This is like saying you guys just don't like Hitler. You don't oppose the Holocaust and the extermination of, of Jews and other undesirables because you actually want to protect you're, you're those playing people. The Hitler card. I'm literally playing playing the Hitler card. I'm literally playing the Hitler card in this case. This right. is absolutely a Godwin's law in full effect. So I've officially lost the argument. The <laughs> okay. idea that 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 people say you don't really care about stopping the Holocaust and protecting Jews and other undesirables that are being gassed in chambers. You just dislike Adolf Hitler personally because he's so detestable and he's such a bad politician and you don't disagree with him. So you're just trying to get him out of office, aren't right. you? No, like, I only care about Trump to the to the extent that he, in terms of politics, to the extent that the, the bad things that he does make America and the rest of the world worse off. They hurt our lives in material ways. They hurt people. They tear us apart and they make make for a grimmer, darker, worse future in every conceivable way. The fact that he is a detestable person, I can separate that out. And I could say, yes, I would like him to have died of COVID. Yes, I would like him to, him to resign in shame. I would like all of these things, but they have nothing to do with my political motivations when I say, wear a damn mask. Right. But it's not that simple because what we have seen over the last year is a very frustrating phenomenon. We've heard from experts and many experts have said, absolutely, we've got to shut down society. Everybody has to wear masks. Everybody has to socially Well, distance. they didn't say that at first. First, they said masks don't work. First, right. they said don't yes, wear masks. There, there That's was the some problem. There was confusion. Right. But I think the problem 
is that we have problems of vast complexity in the society, Matt, such yes. as COVID and climate change. Absolutely. And these problems need solutions arrived at by brilliant people yeah. capable of analyzing the problems and presenting the best public policy options, at which point imperfect politicians have to do the right thing. Yeah. And if they don't, they have to answer to the public at the ballot. My worry is that the brilliant people, the scientists, are in many cases as imperfect as the politicians, because they may have the IQ points that the politicians don't have, but they also, in many cases, have the biases that the politicians have. If somebody has a secret personal agenda to enhance the power of government or to destroy capitalism, I am not interested in their IQ points or their solution. I want brilliant people with unbiased advice. So when we see the great Barrington uh, statement that 43,000 scientists signed saying it is horrendous to shut down society, uh, we've got to do it a different way. We've just got to protect the vulnerable. I kind of like hearing that. On the other hand, I wonder if maybe they have a political bias. And I know that many of the people at the left end of the spectrum who are experts either in COVID or climate change, they have political biases. And I'm sitting here without the IQ points of the scientists tearing my hair out wondering how can I trust these people because we're talking about existential issues and I don't want the issues resolved by people with political biases. I think it's pretty easy to, well, first of all, I agree, but the reality is every single person is a big pile of biases. There's no way of separating who we are from our opinions and our our, our ideas. We are- Not, not Watson, the computer that beat uh, Gary Kasparov and chain. We keep chess. building AI, and AI keeps turning out extremely racist because really? garbage in, garbage out. Everybody is a product of everything around them, and computers are Why no exception. Why not let progressives do the coding? It doesn't work that way. You can be as progressive as you want. You're still full of biases. You're still full of you know things that you have to constantly Well, I'll agree confront. with you there. It, it, it constantly confront and re-examine, and nobody's perfect and nobody's immune from this process, and so we have to constantly be reevaluating that, and that's what the process of science is, and that's why it's so unpalatable, but a very, a very powerful uh, tool that we can use is we could say, is this idea that is uh, presented to me the seductive, sexy, easy answer I want to hear, or is it the hard question I don't want to hear? And if somebody's presenting you with the hard question that you don't want, a hard answer that you don't want to hear, and that they wouldn't want to hear logically, then you should give it extra weight. And when the scientists say we have to shut down society, there's no rational world in which there's a some secret cabal conspiracy of scientists that's saying, well, the idea of shutting down society uh, in terms of shutting down the economy and restricting people's activities, that that will lead to some sort of weird pro-government utopia. That No one thinks that preventing people from going to the park and the mall and doing the things they want to do with their lives will endear them to the government or endear the government to them. That's just not how people's brains work. And nobody thinks that it's working. And the evidence is, the writing is on the wall. If there was a secret conspiracy to try to prop up government power and strength by you know, COVID restrictions, they would have looked around, seen the result, and they would have abandoned ship after a month, after six months. It's not working. People are angry. People hate it. People are screaming there and, and, and protesting and, you know, buying more guns and refusing to wear masks or get vaccines. And, you know, families are being torn apart by this contention because COVID sucks. It's no, you're awful. Right. You're right. It's not a secret conspiracy to prop up the government because it would never work. The motivations would never aren't there. And it isn't happening at the moment. I got to say that. Though I think it would be more effective if the politicians like Governor Newsom uh, weren't 
caught in their situations where they said, absolutely wear a mask, don't, don't go into the restaurant. And then the next day, he's at a, a, a restaurant without a mask where people are yelling so loudly the other uh, patrons are complaining. The whole French laundry thing, I mean, that could drive him right out of office. So it would be nice if we didn't have some hypocrisy from these politicians. This is true. Hey, when we come back, we are going to say goodbye to the uh, famous folks who uh, passed from the scene in 2020. So stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm still Connor Oaks. So every year, of course, this time of year, uh, the press puts together the, the list, the obituaries from the from the really famous folks. And it's always sad to go through the list. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny. It all depends on your level of interest in different things. John le Carre uh, died. He was a spy novelist at age 89. He coined the the, the term mole. Uh, he, I, as I understand it, his heroes I, his were His name of, was in the New York Times crossword the day after he died. Total coincidence. That the crosswords are Months oh, in really? I mean, this is a guy who's so famous that, you know, among novelists, I, I don't remember the last time I saw a novelist uh, name in a crossword, maybe once a month. Uh, and I mean, the guy was uh, was an icon of the, of the genre. And, and where I was headed is I just don't really read much fiction at all. I certainly don't read uh, spy novels. And so personally, you know, I, I never I, I never appreciated his work. I mean, I'm, I read that his heroes were flawed. It wasn't like Mr. Perfect James Bond. I guess Tinker Taylor uh, Soldier Spy was his was his biggest uh, book. Uh, but boy, it's got to it's got to have an impact on a lot of fans because for decades uh, he he was really a, a popular guy. I don't know if you were into that genre, but uh, he he was one of the most popular ones of that uh, in that field. I scan the obits weekly, mm-hmm. uh, but only to find out uh, just to just sort of keep myself on an even keel because I need to know as soon as my hero Charles Entertainment Cheese passes. Uh-huh. Um, and the day that Charles Entertainment Cheese passes. Some people passes, don't call him Charles. They use a nick, kind of a nickname. Yeah, he, he sometimes, his friends, his friends might call him Chucky. Um, but yeah, when he goes, uh, he's the celebrity whose name I will be looking for. Well, here's a celebrity who passed this year, David Lander. Now, if you liked the old show from the 70s, Laverne and Shirley, he was Squiggy of Lenny and Squiggy, Michael McKean of the Christopher Guest mockumentary movies and Better Call Saul. He's the brother on that show. He was Lenny. David Lander became an advocate for fighting multiple sclerosis. He revealed his diagnosis in 1999. And so he got a lot of attention when he passed because, I mean, he did something very courageous. Just to, to go public with his disease. Um, so he he passed from the scene. I doubt that Laverne and Shirley was on your radar screen. No. The, the reruns didn't jump um, out at you. No, it's not on Netflix. So, so. Alex Trebek died at 80 from yeah. pancreatic cancer. My goodness, people followed uh, his illness so closely. He was he was a really beloved character. And, and it's interesting to me. I, I mean, to, did people really know him? I mean, his role was so narrow and focused as the host of that iconic show. You know, he'd have little chats with the with the contestants you remember at the near the start of the show but they were very kind of quick and not too substantive so it was interesting to me that that people bonded with him so much i think it was just partly because he lasted so long on the national scene and i guess seemed like a, a smart nice guy but uh, yeah, uh, didn't didn't really know him. It's true. Sean Connery died at ninety. Uh, talk about typecasting. Uh, the pinnacle of success uh, is uh, James Bond, and uh, and then the, the rest. And ever, of his- basically every other Bond was modeled after him. Like he sure. set that. A character so up so well that other characters came in other actors came in and it was basically like what's our spin on sean connery's bond uh i'm gonna be 
try to be sort of a younger, sexier Bond, and I'll be you mm-hmm. know Pierce Brosnan. And then Daniel Craig uh, comes in. He's like, well, I'm going to be a grittier, uh, you know, uh, Bond. But they're all basically just sp- a spin on the base character that Sean Connery did so well with. Yep. Helen Reddy died at age 78. Now, it's funny. You think of uh, entertainers as generally trying to avoid politics because, for example, you think of Johnny Carson, the, the talk show host. He never would reveal his politics. And I think the idea was he knew, you know, half the people would be ticked. Right. Off if he came out, yeah. which seems so quaint and obsolete now is Stephen Colbert, who isn't exactly shy. Right. And neither are, you know, Kimmel and Fallon and so on about where they stand. But Helen Reddy, her hit in 1971, I Am Woman, really, she became a feminist icon. It was like the anthem of the women's movement. She had a bunch of other hits, Delta Dawn and Angie Baby and Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady. But but the big one was the feminist uh, uh, approach. And it was, it's interesting that politics and popular music can sometimes intersect. I, I, I guess when you think about you know folk singers, uh, Bob Dylan and so on, and, and Joan Baez, uh, th- they're not afraid to take a stand. But uh, it's fascinating to, to see that every once in a while somebody kind of puts their toe in the water in terms of politics and, and makes a big uh, a big splash. Yeah. Now, speaking of putting their toe in the water, this is more than a, a splash. Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, we lost her at age 87 to pancreatic cancer. She was the second woman on the Supreme Court, longtime champion of gender equality. But she got into some hot water, you know, in the last few years of her life. She just couldn't hold back in terms of expressing her opinions about Trump. I think a time or two when he was running and then while he was in office. I mean, it hardly got her in hot water. The people that already liked and respected her well, kind of said, true. well, you're right. Maybe a judge shouldn't be talking about politics, but justice rather. But who cares? You know, all these Judges, we know they're political figures, and they know they're political appointees. Yeah, but for her to go public like that, it really was pretty extraordinary. As you say, it's not like anybody was calling for her impeachment. I mean, look, so. Trump is what's really extraordinary. The idea that that somebody would react to the things that Trump does and says with you know revulsion uh, or or you know uh, embarrassment is is the most natural thing in the world. Should she have controlled herself? I don't know. I don't care. I don't know. Talk about politics, though, John Lewis. I mean, congressman for for uh, for Georgia for like 30, 40 years or something, and obviously a civil rights activist for yeah, for and the courage years he showed back in the sixties. Incredible. People still uh, respected him over the decades. Yeah, I, I saw the, the the biography. I guess you know more of a a, a personal life thing uh, than than his political time once he was a congressman that the the movie kind of just wrapped up but yeah i definitely recommend it i think it's on uh, i think it's on netflix or prime or, or somewhere uh but yeah go go check out um that one it was a it was a real treat and then back to show business regis philbin died at 88 i mean i think he was about the biggest star of unscripted television in history uh, he i think logged more hours on tv than anyone and yeah coincidence, he was the biggest celebrity without like a, a, a scripted role that right. I can imagine. Like he, he, he wasn't an actor. He was just no, himself. No, no. He was just on TV and people loved Regis. And you know, Hugh Downs also passed and he, he was 99 and he had the crown for the most hours on television, I believe until Regis Philbin eclipsed him. And they were both just so friendly and personable, such long careers. I, 
I never met Hugh Downs. I did meet Regis Philbin once. We were putting on the Golden Mike's dinner for the Radio and TV News Association several years ago, and and we gave the award to Regis Philbin, and he agreed to accept it and came out. And I'm telling you, Connor, this guy was so friendly and personable. Uh, he wasn't just being nice to me. There were several of us, you know, affiliated with the group, talking with him, and he seemed so genuinely interested in everybody he was meeting. That's what struck me. I mean, it was none of this. Oh, you know, I'm a celebrity. You know, Right. How do I get out of here? Yeah. It wasn't, you know, at the drop of the hat, people, of course, ask celebrities about their lives. And, of course, they love to talk about them. Anytime anybody would say anything, it was always him reaching back out, asking, oh, tell me about you. Oh, you worked with what station? You know, and yeah. I thought that maybe was a secret of his success because, you know, whether it was Regis with Kathy Lee or uh, the, the even the, the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I mean, that was amazingly successful. It was one of those weird unusual deals where it's a big hit and the networks say, we're going to put it on multiple times per week, yeah. which is insane. Wow. You know, there are five day a week shows, soap operas and so on, but there are basically weekly shows. Right. And for the network to say, they did that for the Batman TV show in the 60s for ABC, I think was the network. They they knew they had a tiger by the tail and it was it was so astoundingly successful, they, they turned it into a multiple uh, show uh, per week deal. And that's what they did for Regis Philbin's uh, program. Wow. Fred Willard, uh, we lost uh, this year, famous for, of course, the mockumentaries that Christopher Guest did. He was mm-hmm. in Modern Family, Everybody Loves Raymond. There was a wonderful fake talk show back in the 1970s called Fernwood Tonight mm-hmm. that Fred Willard uh, started and he was he was the Ed McMahon. He was the sidekick for for Martin Mull. So uh, so he passed in in 2020 as well. Another actor, Chadwick Boseman. Yes, a lot of people took a lot of people by surprise. It felt I think the, the way too was soon. Just you know, just incredibly shocking uh, how much he accomplished after his colon cancer diagnosis. He started you know, all these movies while battling. While fighting this disease and had incredible performances. I mean, he was, he was, you know, Jackie Robinson in 42 and was lauded for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, I don't know if he won an Academy Award or was just nominated, but, but uh, it was, it was incredible uh, how much he did um, despite this just a terrible disease. It's not an easy, you know, kind of cancer that uh, no matter what, if you get colon cancer, it's it's a it's a brutal slog. So many super uh, famous and popular people uh, passed the scene in 2020. There's no time to, to talk about everybody, but I mean, just going down the list, Olivia de Havilland, 104, Carl Reiner at 98, uh, Robert Conrad at 84. Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. Uh, Kirk Douglas is 92. I, I, I just want to end with a, a woman who uh, musicians, uh, music fans will remember Vera Lynn. She was 103. She uh, passed this year. She had a song, We'll Meet Again. And if you are a fan of the movie Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. it is the song at the very end when the bombs uh, are going off to spoiler alert. Uh, and I actually saw the film again recently and I had forgotten how dark it was uh, because it, it deals not just with a, a, an atomic bomb being dropped uh, here and there, which of course is cataclysmic on its own, but it dealt with a doomsday machine, which essentially meant the end, end of uh, humanity. Uh, such a hilarious movie, but very, very dark. And the companion movie was Failsafe, uh, the, the novel that came out uh, in about 1960. And there was actually a legal fight over strange love and failsafe that dealt with the same thing, nuclear accidents, right. Air Force, uh, you know, terrible mistakes. There was litigation and Stanley Kubrick, the director of Strangelove, won. And so he got the right 
to release the film, I think, in late 63. And then it wasn't until eight or nine months later that Failsafe came out. And as a result, it didn't uh, it didn't do very well because it had sort of been eclipsed uh, by Dr. Strangelove. But uh, Vera Lynn, uh, rest in peace, uh, age 103, gave us the song that, uh, that you uh, will recognize from the end of Dr. Strangelove. So I guess we've uh, said goodbye to, uh, to the rich and famous for, for 2020. And uh, hopefully we'll say goodbye to, to COVID too. Uh, if people uh, roll up their sleeves and get the herd immunity at the, what, 75 or 80%? Who knows? That's, uh, that's the goal. We'll see you next week on Too Many Lawyers. Too Many Lawyers.